If you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 1. And in the providence of God, we are in the, in the middle of the study in 1 Samuel. And it just works out so perfect to deal with this passage here today. Uh, a six-week study through 1 Samuel 1 through 15. We've had two messages so far. This is the third message. And we're going to look at 1 Samuel 1, all of that chapter, and then the first 11 verses of chapter 2. Recently, I heard a pastor share a story about a really difficult situation that they faced in their church. There were actually two couples, both of whom were struggling and suffering with infertility or unable to have children. And it was a matter of prayer. It was something that so many people in the church were praying for. And these two couples going through this common, difficult struggle had developed a friendship together. And they were walking through this dark valley together. Well, there was a certain prayer meeting that the church had, and one of those couples raised their hand during the meeting to share a prayer request. And it was actually more of a praise item. They said, praise God, we just found out that God has blessed us with a child. We are going to be having a baby. The whole church in that prayer meeting just started erupting with clapping and, and, and praising God. And, but there was also, just a few seconds later, this kind of sense came over most of the people in the church of this, oh no. Because on one hand, they were, they were so happy for one of those couples. But they thought, oh no, how are they going to deal with this? This must be so hard for them. They have such a close friendship. You know, the Bible calls us to share each other's burdens, but also to rejoice in each other's blessings. Uh, Maybe you found yourself in both of those situations, or you've found yourself in one of those situations today. I think one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, how is it that we trust God in dark times and in desperate situations, especially when it seems like other people have it all together and we don't. That must be why so many of the hymns that we love to sing and deal with this idea of walking through darkness, trusting in the Lord. When darkness seems to hide His face, I rest on His unchanging grace. Holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. Or even we just sang it a moment ago. In the darkest night, you are close like no other. Well, in the book of 1 Samuel, we learned last week that the religious leaders were wicked. That Eli's sons, who were the primary priests of the nations, men named Hophni and Phinehas were wicked. They had polluted the worship of God, and by their sinfulness, they actually provoked God's silence. And we talked about the danger of that, how that our sin can provoke God's silence. And if if you know your Bible, if you follow the storyline, you know that you have Moses, who leads God's people out of Egypt, and God's people have... a faithful leader, not a perfect leader. You can read Moses' life. He is not perfect, but he's a faithful man who leads the people. And when Moses dies, he passes the leadership off to Joshua. 
And Joshua, not a perfect man, but a faithful leader. But when you come to the book of Judges, Joshua dies, and there is no faithful leader to step forward to guide God's people into the truth. And so if you ever read the book of Judges, it's somewhat like watching Jerry Springer, if you've ever watched something like that. It is not a pretty sight at all. It is a mess. And although there are times where you find some godly people, you find a Gideon, even Samson did some, some godly things, although he's a, an enigma of a character who did some very ungodly things as well. Really, the book of Judges is a mess. The people go from sinning, and then God causes them to go into suffering, and then in suffering they cry out to God, and they make supplication, and then God hears their prayer, and He sends them a deliverer to save them out of the mess, and then they go back into sin, and it's this wicked cycle. So next time you read the book of Judges, just keep that cycle in mind. That's what happens. In fact, look, just turn back a few pages in your Bible to the last chapter of Judges, the last verse in the book of Judges. Because the book of 1 Samuel begins as the book of Judges is coming to an end. The book of Judges hasn't really concluded yet as far as the timeline goes. But look at the last verse, Judges 21 verse 25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That sounds like a mess to me, doesn't it to you? There's no one leading the people. They're certainly not letting God be their king as he designed. So everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. And so we come to the book of 1 Samuel, and that's the setting. That's the darkness. That's the scene. Spiritually dark. God is silent because the people have provoked his silence. So the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel was a dark period. It was not only a dark period for the entire nation, but for a particular couple that we're going to see here today, especially for a wife, a barren woman named Hannah. Hannah faced a desperate situation and a difficult trial, but she trusts in God through that darkness. And that's what I want to speak to you about today. The fact that we can trust God when the way is dark and when the situation is desperate. That we can trust God when the way is dark and the situation is desperate. And I think this passage teaches us four things about how we can trust God when we are desperate. And our passage that we're going to look at today actually breaks down into four sections. Let me just give those to you first and then we'll read them and I'll I'll share with you. But really, you can break it down into four sections. If you're looking at 1 Samuel, verse 1 through 8 of chapter 1, God regards our pain. God looks at and regards our pain. That's the first section. Verse 9 through 18, God responds to our prayers. God hears our prayers. He responds to our prayers. The third section is 1 Samuel 1, 19 through 28. God remembers His people and His promises. And then chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, God reverses our plight. That's our message today. Let's talk about the first one. God 
regards our pain. Look at verse 1 of 1 Samuel 1. Now there was a certain man of Ramathain Zophim of Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jerohim, uh, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Penina his wife and to all her sons and her daughters portions. But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion or a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had shut up her womb. And her adversary also provoked her sore, for to make her fret, because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her. Therefore, she wept and did not eat. Then said Elkanah, her husband, to her, Hannah, why weepest thou? Why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? Am I not better to thee than ten sons? I mean, right off the bat here, we see a woman who longs to be a mother, but in God's providence and in God's plan, that dream has gone unfulfilled. She has not been able to have a child, and she's facing what is really a a common struggle. But that doesn't make it any less painful that it's common. That that many couples go through this does not make it any less painful. Here is a woman who comes from quite a long line of faithful women who have experienced infertility. That we just watched a video that highlighted some of that, like Sarah, who was unable to have a child, Rebecca, Rachel, Samson's mother that we learn about in Judges chapter 13. This is just a few that we could name. And you know, one of the things that we notice in the details here of this story is that she has one husband, but sadly, her husband doesn't have one wife. Husband. But her husband has two wives. And we're not told exactly why, but our, our best guess, and more than likely, is that Elkanah took a second wife because Hannah was not able to have children. In fact, I think you could probably make a really good argument from that, from just the, the order of, in the passage, where it says in verse 2 that he had two wives, the name of the one was Hannah, and then Penina. And I just think that word order helps us to understand that Hannah was probably his first wife. And then the order is reversed after that, the end of the chapter, because Penina has children and Hannah has no children. So Hannah's first and then last in this. And the idea is that he probably took a second wife because his first wife was not able to have children. Now, my message today is not about polygamy, and I may do that for a Theology Thursday here this coming week, if you want to tune in on our Facebook page for some information about that. But I just want to say briefly that we need to be reminded that polygamy was never God's will. It's something that perhaps God tolerated in His mercy, but it went against God's good design. You see that all through Scripture. Polygamy has done nothing but wreak havoc 
in Scripture upon families and homes, beginning with Abraham and Sarah, and you see the situation with Hagar and the pain that that brought, and on and on and on and on. So what made Hannah's situation even more agonizing is that she has to share Elkanah, her husband, with Penina. A woman who is fertile, a woman who's able to have many children, and a woman who rubs Hannah's face in it. Sometimes you should just slow down and read the passage slow where it talks about how year after year they go up for this annual sacrifice. And year after year after year, Penina, who's called Hannah's adversary, is provoking her. Someone said, she probably said something like, uh, oh, you know, I've got all these children to take care of. You must know what that's like, Hannah, don't you? Oh, oh yeah, I forgot. Yeah, you don't have to. Or when they gave all the, the food out that... It talks about that Elkanah gave to all of Penina and all of her children. And, and then Hannah, oh, Hannah, what are you going to do with all that food that you have? How, who are you going to feed that to since you don't have any children that you can share it with? This aspect of their family life is especially highlighted when they go on this annual trip to sacrifice to God. They would offer sacrifices and Hannah was given a double portion, but here the passage says she's in such pain, she can't eat. That all she could do is weep, verse 7 says. She, she wept, she did not eat. You see that contrast? She can't eat, she can only weep. Her heart is broken. And, in, and, and Elkanah, you know, Lord bless him. <laughs> I think he's trying. But he's like a lot of us husbands, right? He just doesn't have a clue that so much of what he says is insensitive. Like, I mean, he just, I think maybe even the double portion, like, I, I think he meant well by that, but perhaps that was even hard because here she has all this food and that maybe compounds the fact that, I mean, I don't have anyone to share it with. But his real ignorance is shown in verse 8. So any of you new husbands, uh, look at verse 8 and learn from Elkanah's mistake. Perhaps you won't be on the couch. Verse 8, he says, am I not better than you, than, than, than ten sons? I mean, you just want to say, Elkanah, no, 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 this is, this is not wise. Abort mission, right? This is not the path to take. I mean, he's making things worse. He doesn't realize probably that he's being insensitive. He probably should have kept his mouth shut, but it would have been better for him to say something like this, that Hannah, you are better to me than ten sons. That would have been better than saying, am I not better to you than ten sons? Hey, husbands, you really want to make things worse for yourself? Just compare your wife's problems you know, to you, right? That you make everything better. That, that's going to go really well for you, right? Trust me, I've learned. <laughs> and through all this, we begin to see that God sees Hannah. I mean, God's name is not really mentioned in that way yet, but but God is not oblivious to this. He's not unconcerned about her sorrow. He regards her pain. We'll get there in a second, but look at verse 11. She says to him, look on the affliction. Remember me. That's the idea of regard. Look at me, God. Regard me, God. Don't, don't forget about me, God. And God hasn't. He's moved with compassion. 
You know, why God allows suffering is a really difficult question. It bothers all of us at some point, and it bothers many people to this day. And what can be a very difficult question to answer in and of itself is really, in some ways, compounded by the fact that sometimes God is the direct cause of our suffering. That God is the one who sends us down that path. Did you notice verse 6? We don't need to hide from it. The Lord shut her womb. It says it twice. Verse 5. Verse 6. God did this. This was not an accident. This is not poor luck of the draw for Hannah. God was behind this. Does that line up with your conception of God? Or do you have to create a God in your mind that fits your desires that never would do something like that? Because here, as we are in every page of the Bible, we're confronted with the sovereign God who does as He pleases. That we don't get to control Him. We don't get to decide what He can or can't do. We're called to submit to Him and to seek Him. And so in this story, we see that God has a purpose for pain. That's the comfort that we take. And that God, even though He sends pain our way, He cares for us in the midst of it. So what kind of pain are you dealing with today? What sorrow or suffering are you carrying with you? Because my encouragement for you at this point in the message is to resist the lie that God doesn't see you. That God isn't concerned about the tears that you cry, about the ways that you are provoked in pain. He regards your pain. Again, when darkness seems to hide His face, I rest on His unchanging grace. Perhaps there's a wife here struggling through infertility, a mother who lost a child, or just some of us who are just dealing with some kind of deep pain. Hannah reminds us to know that even in our darkness, God regards your pain. But there's another application, and I hope you won't miss this today, because I think it's really helpful. That there's something that we need to wrestle with personally here. Do you ever feel taunted by other people's successes? Do you ever feel taunted by the prosperity of others? I mean, sometimes just scrolling through Facebook or Instagram can do that to us. Look at that nice house. Such a good-paying job. Such a picture-perfect marriage. Such an easy life without health concerns that I deal with. And sometimes people aren't deliberately provoking us. I mean, Penina was deliberately provoking. And you may have someone like that in your life. But sometimes it's not someone who's just deliberately provoking you, but just the good that they have torments what we don't. Again, maybe every time you open up social media or go to work, you feel taunted by what others have that you don't. Maybe you've even started to question, does God even see me here? That's what Hannah tells us. God regards our pain. Secondly, God responds to our prayers. Look at verse 9 through 18. So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh and after they had drunk. Now Eli the priest sat upon the seat by a post of the temple of the Lord. 
And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child or son, then I will give unto him the Lord all the days of his life. And there shall no razor come upon his head. And it came to pass, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli marked her mouth. He followed her lips, in other words. Now Hannah, she spake in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she had been drunken. And Eli said unto her, How long wilt thou be drunken? Put away thy wine from thee. Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither, the, neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Count thy handmaid, count not thy handmaid for a daughter of Belial. Out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken hitherto. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant thee thy petition that thou hast asked of him. And she said, let, let thy handmaid find grace in thy sight. So the woman went her way and did eat, and her countenance was no more sad. I mean, after the meal, which Hannah couldn't eat, she made her way into the temple to pray, into the tabernacle that was in Shiloh at this point. And did you notice the descriptions of her prayer? Bitterness of soul, weeping bitterly, She's pouring out her soul before the Lord, verse 15. She's praying out of great anxiety and vexation, verse 16. Wow. She's a desperate woman, and all she can do is cry out to God in prayer. The word faith is not used in, those pas in that passage, but it's everywhere, and it's spelled P-R-A-Y-E-R. It's spelled prayer. Of course, she's praying for a son. Verse 11 tells us that she vows to dedicate him to the Lord. And that's a Nazarite vow. If you've ever read Numbers chapter 6, she's saying, I'm going to dedicate this son completely to the Lord. There's some things that may sound strange to us, but we're a part of that vow to symbolize someone's been set apart. They couldn't shave their head or cut their hair. They, uh, he couldn't go to any, any kind of strong drink or or, or be anywhere near a, a dead body. That was part of what was involved in the Nazarite vows, a way of separating someone out to be dedicated to God. And while she's praying, she's not actually saying anything out loud. That she's praying in her heart. Her lips are moving, but there's no words actually being spoken out loud. She's in such distress that Eli thinks that she's drunk. Now, this could be the fact that he's just not very perceptive at all. So he rebukes her. And Hannah quickly explains that she's pouring out her soul to God. And Eli says, go in peace. The God of Israel grant thee thy petition. And it's interesting because Hannah believes this. She says in verse 18, you know, let, let, let thy handmaiden find grace in your sight. And even the way she acts now is different. Now she goes and she eats and she's no longer sad. She's prayed, she's poured out her heart, and now through the words of Eli, she believes God has heard my 
prayer. You know, prayer is an interesting thing. It's one of those ways that God has chosen to cause us to walk by faith, to live by can't see God with our eyes, we can't touch Him with our hands, we can't even hear Him with our ears, but we must call out to this God who is invisible to us and trust that He hears us. Do you believe that God hears prayer? I mean, where do you go when you're in deep pain and sorrow and gray anxiety? Where do you go? Do you complain about your problems? Do you seek advice from experts? Or do you primarily pour out your soul to God in prayer? And how encouraging that Hannah shows us here that we don't have to wait till we feel cheery to pray. That we don't have to wait till we feel carefree. So we feel like we're happy and in a good mood, and, but that God invites us to come just as we are, that we don't have to fake being happy, that we can come to God with all that pain in the soul and pour out our hearts. And then I wonder, when you and I pray, do we leave our place of prayer different than how we came? Because we believe that God's heard us. That we're reminded afresh that He cares, that He hears. And all my problems may not be gone away yet. They may not go away anytime soon. But God is changing me through prayer. God regards our pain. God responds to prayers. Thirdly, God remembers His people and His promises. Look at verse 19. So this is after she's left the temple and she's no longer sad. She's eaten. Verse 19, And they rose up in the morning early and worshipped before the Lord and returned and came to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Very important word here, remembered. The Lord remembered her. Wherefore it came to pass that when the time was come about after Hannah had conceived, that she bare a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. And the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer unto the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah went not up, for she said unto her husband, I will not go up until the child be weaned, and then I will bring him, that he may appear before the Lord and there abide forever. And Elkanah, her husband, said unto her, Do what seemeth good, tarry until thou have weaned him, only the Lord establish his word. So the woman abode and gave her son suck until she had weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him with her with three bullocks and one ephah of flour and a bottle of wine and brought him unto the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. And they slew a bullock and brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as thy soul liveth, my Lord, I am the woman that stood by thee here praying unto the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord hath given me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore also I have lent or given him to the Lord. As long as he liveth, he shall be lent or given to the Lord. And he, that is the young child Samuel, worshipped the Lord there. God remembers his people. I mean, Hannah and Elkanah return home. Hannah conceives. God 
hears her prayers, and she has a son. Now, why, what has changed? Why is it that this woman who has not been able to have a child is now able to have a child? Verse 20 tells us, excuse me, verse 19, the last part of verse 19, the Lord remembered her. Now, of course, you know this doesn't mean that God had somehow let Hannah slip. His, oh, I forgot about her. I didn't realize she was down there. Now, we realize that that's not what's happening. Did you know that the word remembered is often used in the Bible as covenant language? You remember what it says about Noah when he's in the ark? And after the waters have, have covered all the earth, and there's Noah in the with his family and the animals, it says in, in Genesis 8.1 that the Lord remembered Noah. It says the same thing about Abraham whenever he's praying about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 19, verse 29, that God remembers Abraham and he rescues Lot. It's the same thing that's said about the nation of Israel when they're in Egypt in, in, in Exodus chapter 2 and they're groaning under the suffering that they're going through there. God remembered them. This remembered word is a covenant word that God keeps his promises. He doesn't forget his people. And so that's why she names her son Samuel, which probably means something like God has heard me. God has heard. So she gives him that name to indicate that he's an answer to prayer. That Samuel, she says in verse 27 very directly, Samuel is the child she prayed for that God has granted. He is an answer to prayer. And just some of the details of the story that you see is that she waits until the child is weaned, and then she goes back up to the temple. Now, sometimes we talk about this, maybe if you've ever been to a baby dedication service or on Mother's Day, and we talk about someone dedicating their child to the Lord. Do you know what that involves here for Santa, Hannah? It doesn't involve just standing up there at the baby and letting a pastor pray for the baby. Hannah's saying, when I take him to the temple, I'm going to leave him there. Like, that's what's involved in this dedication. That my son is going to serve the Lord not in my house, not in my town, but in Shiloh, where the tabernacle is. Brothers and sisters, this is a costly sacrifice. Hannah realizes that worship is not just about singing a song. A lot of people today think well, worship is singing. Well, worship is a, singing is a part of worship. But Hannah's sacrificial offering of giving her son to the service of God is an act of deep worship. She longed for this son, but the remarkable thing about this woman, hear me well, please, she has no greater joy than to see that her son serve God. That's her greatest joy. And don't miss an important aspect to this story that Samuel's birth and life is not just a blessing to Hannah. It's a blessing to the whole nation. That this son is going to be serving in the tabernacle, and he is going to be someone that God uses like a Moses and like a Joshua to lead the people. Again, remember that covenant language word, remember that God is not only remembering Hannah, God is remembering the nation by giving them Samuel. That Samuel, in many ways, symbolizes hope 
for the nation, that God is going to bless this man for the entire nation. And that through Samuel, God is going to continue forward his promises and plan. What's this mean for us today? Well, when the night is most dark and our hearts feel the most desperate, we can hold fast to the truth that God always remembers his people. I was driving down the road and listening to something yesterday, and what someone said reminded me of this song we used to sing when I was in college. It's called Trust His Heart. It's from a, a quote from Charles Spurgeon. And it goes like this, All things work for our good, though sometimes we don't see how they could. Struggles that break our hearts in two sometimes blind us to the truth. Our Father knows what's best for us. His ways are not our own. So when your pathway grows dim and you just don't see Him, remember you're never alone. And then here's the chorus. God is too wise to be mistaken. God is too good to be unkind. So when you don't understand, and when you can't trace His hand, trust His heart. That's what Hannah's story reminds us of. That God remembers His people. And like Hannah, we can trust Him. God remembers His people, but here's our question for us today. Do we remember God? God remembers us. But do you remember Him? Do you give back to God what He has given to you? Or do you expect God to give to you to make your life happy, and then it's kind of a, a one-way thing. God gives and you keep, and you got a great deal. Or is it this idea of Hannah, where God gives and we give back? And we enjoy what it is to worship and to serve and to give and to be like our God. Your finances, your work, your abilities, your time, your family. Let me speak to you parents and maybe specifically you mothers here today on Mother's Day. Is it truly your greatest desire to see your children serve God? And none of us should be too quick to answer that. I mean, can you say that nothing would bring you more joy than to see your children serve the Lord? And if that's the case, do your decisions reflect that? Or do your decisions reflect that those are just mere words that mean nothing? Because I'm afraid I witness many Christian parents who are far more concerned about their children being a star athlete, valedictorian at school, set up for a successful career, accepted into the best colleges, rich with experiences, and travel, far more concerned about that than that their children serve God. Now again, there's nothing wrong with your kids doing well in school, and I hope you work with them towards that, or getting them into a, a wonderful college, or providing rich experiences. But remember, the question is, is what brings you most joy? Is it to see them serve the Lord, or to see them have a successful career? Because if, if you treat church and serving God as optional, don't be surprised if your children treat God himself as optional. Like, don't be surprised if you pour all of your attention into making sure that they're a star athlete, 
rest in class, enjoy all of these other experiences. But you're just kind of, yeah, if we have time, we'll serve God. If we have time, we'll, we'll kind of be hit and miss with church. You know, we'll kind of, you know, read the Bible occasionally. Don't be surprised if your child treats God as optional. I mean, Hannah here is saying to us, nothing is more important to me than that this son God gave me gives himself back to God. I just don't want any of us to be deceived into thinking that we're raising a Samuel, raising a Hophni or Phineas. That by our actions, are we making decisions like Hannah or like Eli? Last of all, God regards our pain. God responds to our prayers. God remembers his people and his promises. Lastly, God reverses our pain. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. This is Hannah's prayer. It's really more of a song than a prayer. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoiceth in the Lord. Mine horn is exalted in the Lord. Now you're reading that thinking, what is that talking about? A horn was a, uh, you know, the, in, in an animal, the, a horn that was standing up was a sign of, of victory. That one of these animals with a horn was... Standing up straight was the idea of strength and victory in battle. She's saying that my horn is raised or exalted. God has given me victory, she's saying. My mouth is enlarged over mine enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee. Neither is there any rock like our God. Talk no more exceedingly proud. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, and they that stumbled are girded with strength. They that were full have hired out themselves for bread, and they that were hungry ceased, so that the barren hath borne seven, and she that hath many children is waxed feeble. The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He raises up the poor out of dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill, to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he hath, he hath set the world upon them. He will keep the feet of his saints, and the wicked shall be silent in darkness, for by strength shall no man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces, out of heaven shall he thunder upon them, the Lord shall judge the ends of the earth. He shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And Elkanah went to Ramah to his house, and the child did minister unto the Lord before Eli the priest. I mean, this last section concludes with Hannah's song of praise. It's a, it's a song just saturated with Scripture and with truth. It, it reveals just how devout and godly of a woman Hannah was, how well she knew her Bible and how much she loved her God. She starts by boasting and exalting in God, verse 1 and 2, for His salvation and holiness, that He's the unequaled one. But then I want you to see something very important here, that her song begins to describe this reversal of circumstances, where she begins to describe how the proud and arrogant are going to be brought low and the humble will be raised up. And so do you see all these reversal of circumstances? Verse 4, the, the mighty versus the feeble. 
Verse 5, the full, the hungry, the barren and the fertile, the dead and the living, verse 6, the rich and the poor, verse 7 and 8. And how that God is this sovereign Lord of the universe, verse 8, that He's working all things out to accomplish His purpose. In verse 9, He's going to guard the feet of His saints and He's going to judge the wicked in darkness. And He's going to do all this as it culminates in verse 10, through the Messiah, through His King, through the Anointed One. You may know that Hannah's song here in 1 Samuel 2 is really, really similar to Mary's song in Luke chapter 1 when she finds out that she is with child and that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. That you should read Luke chapter 1, verse 46 through 55 sometime today and just see how close it is what Mary says and what Hannah says. Says, In fact, you can't really read 1 Samuel 1 and 2, if you know your Bible, without thinking about Luke 1 and 2. There's so much in there that parallel each other. But here's the point I want to make as we come to a close. That Hannah is rejoicing here because she sees that God has not only been good to her personally, that God is doing something to reverse her condition, but that God is doing something for the whole nation. That God is doing something to reverse not only her plight, but the plight of all of her people. Do you see how grandiose this whole thing is that she's saying? Like her prayer is not just about, thank you God for delivering me from my own personal affliction. Look what she says in verse 10, chapter 2. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth. She sees in the birth of her son... Something about the hope of God. And isn't that what Mary saw? In a far greater way, when Mary learns that she has a child living in her who will be called the Son of God. That what Hannah sees kind of faintly, Mary sees even more clearly because Samuel points to a greater son that would be born. Samuel points to Jesus Jesus is the one that Hannah is speaking about here, although she doesn't know his name and doesn't know when he'll be born. But she is telling us about this king, this anointed one that's coming. And that's Jesus himself. So God not only reversed the plight of Hannah, God reverses the plight of his people. God is doing something to reverse the plight of the world through through the coming of a baby. And Jesus Christ himself changes our plight. He, by his coming into this world, reverses our fate. Although every reversal does not happen in this life, it does eventually. Now, I want to close with something really important that I hope you won't miss. Do you know what the prosperity gospel gets wrong? The prosperity gospel gets many things wrong. But one of the things they get wrong, as one brother from Cameroon said, that all of God's blessings and promises can be fully realized right now. That's what the prosperity gospel tells you. If you're sick, name it and claim it. If you're poor, 
Ask God, He'll make you rich. That everything that God has promised is realized right now. In other words, they promise too much too soon. Whatever your plight, whatever your suffering, God will reverse it right now if you have enough faith and if you give to this phone number. <laughs> right? Friends, it's a lie. It's a lie. Whatever your plight and your suffering, if you're a Christian, I can say to you today, God will reverse it. But not necessarily right now. Not necessarily in this life. That yes, we rejoice and we pray in faith because God is able to make the barren woman fertile. But He doesn't always remove the plight. Yes, God is able to raise the poor out of poverty. He is able to give strength to the weak and sickly. He is able to grant justice to the oppressed. But He may not reverse all of that now. Our hope is not in the fact that there's no, none of these things are going to continue on in our life. Here's our hope, friends. Our hope is in the fact that there's no infertility, no poverty, no sickness, and no suffering in heaven. When God's anointed one comes again. That's what the prosperity gospel gets wrong. But it gets something else wrong. Many things, I said. Here's one more. Perhaps the biggest problem for the prosperity gospel is not that they promise too much, although there's a sense in which they do that, but that they promise too little, is what Albert Moeller said. That is, the prosperity gospel focuses on earthly prosperity, earthly health, earthly riches, and miss the heart of what is good about the gospel, which is the eternal forgiveness of sin being a child of God and the hope of eternal life with Him. Prosperity gospel promises you health, health and wealth, but God promises us eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. Do you have that kind of real hope that your plight is going to be reversed? Are you going to go to faith healing service, to faith healing service, to... TV preacher to TV preacher to name it and claim it prayer to name it and claim it prayer? Or are you going to put your hope in something greater and grander and that is in Jesus Christ, God's Son, who left heaven, who came into this world, who was born of a virgin, who lived the perfect sinless life, who died on the cross for the sins of the world, including yours and mine, and rose again from the dead, proving that God has accepted his sacrifice. And he said to his disciples, in the world you will have tribulation. Doesn't sound like prosperity gospel to me. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. I trust that's what your hope is in. That you have repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus alone as Savior. Not for a quick fix of your problems but for an eternal fix for your sin and guilt. Christ may not choose to solve your temporary problems, but in His death and resurrection, He has solved all of your problems eternally if you'll trust in Him.
Well, we started that message thinking about that two, those two couples, the rejoicing for one and the oh no for the other. Do you know how the story ended? Well, after the, the good news was shared that this couple was with child, the pastor looked around the room and he asked, who would like to pray for, and he named this couple, who would like to pray for them with this good news and to pray for God's blessing upon this pregnancy? And he's looking over this side, but he sees a hand waving to him on this side of the room. And you know who it was? It was the husband of that other couple struggling with infertility. And the husband stood up and he said, I want to be the one to pray for my friends. And the pastor says he prayed such a glorious, even though it was painful, it was a glorious prayer for his friends, praising God for blessing them with a child. Here's a man who knew that God can be trusted when the way is dark and the situation is desperate. A man who believes that God regards our pain, responds to our prayers, remembers his people, and reverses our plight. Let's stand. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the story of Hannah, for the hope that we find here. Thank you that you do regard our pain, that you see and look on us through all the pain that we feel, that you respond to our prayers, that we pray to you, we can trust you've heard us, that you remember your promises. You'll not let one of your promises fall to the ground. And God, we're trusting in the great reversal of our plight. And sometimes we are blessed to witness a foretaste of that now, where you reverse our circumstances of suffering in some way in this life. But Lord, we know there are other times that you don't reverse the plight, where the sickness, the infertility, the sorrow, is something we endure to the end of this life. But you have promised and we hold fast to the truth that you will reverse all of our suffering when we're with you in glory. And may our faith hold fast to your promises. If there's anyone here today, Lord, who's not trusted in Jesus alone as Savior, may they find in him today salvation full and free through his death and the shedding of his blood on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.